Welcome to Talk Nation Radio, a half-hour discussion of politics as if the people mattered. I'm David Swanson. It is my great pleasure to welcome to Talk Nation Radio this week investigative reporter Susie Dawson. She is an accomplished independent New Zealand journalist and activist. She specializes in writing about whistleblowers, intelligence agencies, and technology. She currently resides in Moscow, Russia, where she has applied for temporary asylum due to severe persecution she was subjected to by those whose corruption she worked to expose in New Zealand. Dawson's website is Susie. 3d.com that's s-u-z-i numeral 3d.com Susie Dawson welcome to Talk Nation Radio thank you so much for having me so Susie you you got into journalism in New Zealand through becoming an activist in the Occupy movement how did that come about in terms of how my journalism came about it was by necessity Um, We discovered very quickly that there was a global blackout on media coverage of the Occupy movement and we began to collaborate with other Occupy media teams all around the world to create our own media to try to counter that blackout. Once the blackout was broken and the media began to cover the movement, they were very disparaging across the board. Again, we then had to counter that narrative by creating our own media. So it was never a conscious choice. It was just born out of the fact that the media were not giving us fair coverage. So they really created us. They created our work by refusing to fairly cover our movement. Was it animosity toward activism or toward the the issues or the topics, the demands that you were bringing to, to those in power? I think that the blackout was a vacuum where the orders had not come down from on high as to how the media companies should slant or pitch their coverage of the movement. Um, I think that Occupy grew so quickly, um, within a a matter of a couple of weeks, there were 2,000 occupations worldwide. And I think that until those orders filtered down from above on how the media should respond to it, there was just this blanket silence. You could tell this very clearly because when they finally began to cover the movement, the narrative was uniform across these thousands of outlets all around the world. They used the same slants, the same angles to demean the movement and the participants in the movement. So it's very clear to me that it was a coordinated effort to suppress the movement and to discredit it. And and what was Occupy about in New Zealand? What demands were you making? What programs were you proposing, et cetera? What were the, the issues? Occupy was born out of a profound dissatisfaction with the puppetry, theatre or reality TV show that is conventional politics. It very much seemed that there was no real democratic choice. We're being offered Coke versus Pepsi in terms of like the Democrats versus the Republicans or in New Zealand, the National Party versus the Labour Party. Ultimately, it's the same interests supporting both of those parties. And so the interests of the common people are not served and are completely overlooked. So Occupy was born out of a frustration um, where people did not feel that they had the ability to be politically engaged unless they were billionaires. They couldn't have a meaningful impact on the political course of their countries. And so we came together communally to try, well, in outrage at at the state of the planet and what was being perpetuated environmentally and economically and politically. 
But then as we all came together, it became really driven by people-powered solutions to social issues. So we began to literally feed each other and house each other and support each other and find community in a way that we didn't have in the status quo conventional matrix world. At Occupy, we no one was homeless for that short space of three and a half, four months in Auckland and New Zealand in my city. There were no homeless people because everybody was able to have some, some shelter at the occupations. There was no one going hungry because everybody was fed. It's a wonderful accomplishment. I think forcing the story into the media is all this to the corporate media is also an amazing accomplishment because here in the United States, we had dozens of attempts at something like Occupy uh, that were steadfastly ignored by the media. And we did independent media and we tried to interest the big corporate media without any success until, you know, every once in a while, as with Occupy, something happens. And what happened in that case was uh, vicious police brutality in New York City that was covered by the corporate media. And then once it was covered once, it became a story that they had to keep covering. Uh, it, it sounds like the, the police at first were perhaps better behaved or the media didn't care about the police brutality. When did, uh, when did the police get mean and nasty in New Zealand? That's kind of up for debate. Publicly, the police in New Zealand were saying that we had the right to protest and that they were respecting our democratic right to peacefully assemble and that they weren't going to oppress us. However, there was covert infiltration from very early on and there was attempts to sabotage and suppress us from internally within our organisation and, and our movement to disrupt us, to just push us off course and interfere with us. I think that came from the state, but it also came from private interests. Then when the evictions happened um, on January 23rd and January 26, 2012, um, the police were there, but the, um, it was actually private security companies that declared themselves warranted officers of the council and then basically stole everybody's belongings and um, were mass arresting people in coordination with the police. Were those evictions in January of Occupy encampments that had started the previous September? Correct, yeah. So they were fairly long-lasting. Yeah, we started in Auckland on October 15th, uh, 2011, but um, NYC was September 18th, I believe, or September 17th, 2011. Right. We spread and had four occupations eventually by the time that um, the evictions came. And, and the New Zealand government uh, spied on activists extensively, and you came to learn, shares that information with the U.S. government. Correct. It has come to light that at least 88 New Zealand citizens were illegally spied on by the GCSB, which is our equivalent of the NSA. Um, and by their very founding charter, they, were, they had no right to spy on their own citizenry. They were supposed to spy on foreign diplomats or foreign spies, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but instead, they were spying on um, activists and, I believe, journalists in New Zealand. And then they were shipping that, the data that they collected from those, tar those illegal targets to um, the NSA in Hawaii in 2012. Uh, we know this because a report called the Kitteridge Report was leaked to the public 
um, which revealed that the GCSB had done this. Um, this was in the wake of the raid on Kim.com's house, a mansion in, in Auckland in Coatesville, which occurred three days prior to the first eviction of Occupy Auckland. I don't so, know if everyone knows who Kim.com is, maybe in, in, right. in New Zealand. He's a tech genius and, and millionaire and founder of the Internet Party in New Zealand. He um, was picked on by the, the MPAA, um, and the RAA in America for copyright because he created a website called Mega Upload, which had hundreds of millions of users and was a serious competitor to Hollywood interests. So the FBI came to New Zealand and coordinated this massive raid of his mansion with ridiculous amounts of police officers and helicopters and attack dogs and everything you can imagine it's pretty over the top you can read about all the details um, at Kim's website which is kim.com literally kim.com on the web Um, and we believe that the FBI in that same week also participated in the evictions at Occupy Auckland because we caught police officers with fake badges, replica badges, perfect replicas of actual police badges, but with fake numbers operating on the ground in Auckland. And the the government supposedly investigated that uh, for a year. And then after a year, they literally said that they had more important things to focus their resources on investigating than fake police officers and they believe that it must just be the action of rogue officers, <laughs> as, if, as if rogue officers could sit at home manufacturing perfect replicas of police identification badges. Yeah, police not concerned about there being fake police out there seems a little suspicious. Huh? Yes. So how, how did you come to know that 80-some activists had been spied on in particular? I mean, they didn't put out a press release announcing that, right? No. So slowly over a course of time, information came to light that Kim.com had been illegally spied on by the GCSB and an inqui- a resulting inquiry um, led to the discovery that actually at least 88 New Zealanders had been. And 88 is a misleading number because for every person that they target, they actually target hundreds of people because they target every single person that the target knows or has any contact with. And then they target every single person that is two degrees of separation from the target. So in New Zealand, this means a huge chunk of our country really could have been caught up in this just by being two degrees of separation from a target. But what is particularly offensive to us was the FBI incursion into New Zealand because they have no jurisdiction there. They have absolutely no right to be coming and raiding people in our country or, you know, evicting people at a democratic protest. Um, and they, the government has no right to be harvesting the private data of its own citizens and handing it to a foreign power. To, to the NSA. Correct. And what is the interest, uh, does anyone know, of the U.S. government, of the NSA, in having personal information on nonviolent political activists in New Zealand? 
Well, I think that um, it's pretty well known that the NSA wants to collect it all, meaning all of the data of everybody around the planet that they can possibly get their hands on they want, regardless of whether a common person would think that that data would be of any interest whatsoever. Um, Many people say they wouldn't spy on me because I'm boring. They don't realize that even if you are boring, that data about you being boring is still valuable to these people. They can still turn it to a purpose. They can still build a profile of you and your life, be it a commercial big data company that then takes that and uses it for monetary reasons or a police state, which uses it for social control reasons. Whether you're interesting or boring makes no difference. Every person generates data and they want that data. And every person can be charged with a crime. There are so many thousands of crimes on the books. Anything can be be manipulated into uh, being criminal. But I'm interested that you mentioned that they were spying on uh, you activists illegally, because I think you've written that they then uh, retroactively legalized it. Is that right? Correct. So... The pattern that is unfolding around the world is that the agencies get caught doing illegal things. And then the end result of that is rather than people getting fired and budgets getting slashed, it goes the other way. They get given more powers. New legislation is introduced. Their powers are expanded to include the activity that was formerly illegal. And in this particular instance, they did retroactively apply the legislation which is, as far as I'm concerned, is a complete bastardization of the law. Because how how can you say that something that was illegal is now legal after the fact? It makes no sense whatsoever. But sure enough, the GCSB has been given budget increases year in and year out. They have, for the second time, just been given in 2016 a vast swath of new powers to increase their ability to spy on people in line with the rest of the Western world where the same thing is occurring. It, it, it seems like, you know, and, and I, this is a trend, of course, in many areas, uh, sadly, for many years, that the U.S. Is, uh, is a negative influence on places like New Zealand in this regard. But from your accounts, it seems like New Zealand is actually breaking new ground in some ways that uh, at least we aren't aware of the U.S. doing. That, that is, it seems like there are more surveillance cameras and cameras in people's houses, uh, which I have not yet heard about uh, the U.S. government openly claiming the, the power to do. Is, you know, what, how far have they gone uh, with the surveillance state in New Zealand? This is correct. Um, They have created a law that says that without a warrant, they can place cameras inside your domestic dwelling, your residence, for up to 24 hours before they need to apply for a warrant. So this is this kind of like predictive policing nonsense that we hear about, the late minority report style policing, where You don't have to do something wrong. They just have to think that there might be some reason they're interested in you. And then without a warrant, they can go ahead and surveil you and then worry about paperwork after the fact. Um, And to me, it's extremely Orwellian, extremely alarming and really quite despicable. 
I don't think that there's any basis for it whatsoever. And I think it's extremely dangerous to our democracy. And and is it is it having an impact? Is it repressing activism in New Zealand? I mean, you talk about uh, all of the surveillance and harassment that you experienced, uh, people breaking into your house, etc., uh, that finally led to you leaving the country. How how is the rest of the activist movement in New Zealand doing? Well, I think there's been a very very long history of suppression of activism in New Zealand that goes back decades. Um, in the early 80s in the anti-nuclear movement and in the anti-apartheid movement, the repression was more visible because literally a team of police officers with billy clubs would show up and club you in the head and it may well have been recorded and put on TV that night. So it was very visible oppression. But where we're at now is that these intelligence agencies collect the data and the information that's used to target you but then that information filters down through a network of private contracting agencies and security agencies. And those um, investigative and security agencies seem to be able to get away with a lot uh, kind of under the table, under the cover. So they, they have the protection of the law, but they, what they do is kind of behind the scenes. So, Unless you get someone who is, like me, fortunate enough to be able to speak out and be heard about what's going on, I think that nine times out of ten, people don't realise that it's happening. And I think that these guys are getting away with a, a huge amount of crime that very few people are aware of. And I, I do wonder to myself quite often if I was if I was less strong of a person, if I was in less of a privileged position, in New Zealand, if I was homeless, if I was indigenous, would I have even survived what I went through? And I think that the answer is probably no. Um, but at the end of the day, I was a white middle-class mother from the suburbs. I was able to communicate about what was happening. I was able to write about what was happening and research about it and to make connections. And I think that that's what kept me in one piece. So I do, I am concerned that people of less privilege suffer disproportionately and that much of it goes under the radar. And I, I hope that that changes going forward. I hope we can raise some awareness about what's happening because in New Zealand, we have um, something called the Inspector General of Intelligence Services. Um, that IGIS can investigate what the intelligence agencies do but has no jurisdiction whatsoever over the private agencies. And I think that the private agencies are where most of this harassment and stalking and gang stalking and everything else is going on. I think that's where it's occurring. Yeah, we're, we're speaking with Susie Dawson, uh, whose work can be found at S-U-Z-I 3D, Susie, numeral 3D.com, uh, including documentaries and lengthy accounts. Uh, I think we could talk for hours just about what was done to you uh, in, in retaliation for your activism, Susie. And I, I, I want to get on to the topic of, of Russia, but can you, can you just summarize briefly? I, I mean, they 
came after you with uh, private investigators and infiltrators and breaking into your house repeatedly. Uh, yeah, they tampered with my car. They stole my equipment. They interfered with all my communications. They sabotaged my relationships in my community, personal relationships. They set up smear websites about me. They told people that I was a, a, I was a police officer, that I was spying on activists when they were the ones spying on the activists and spying on me. They um, did all kinds of nefarious things. Um, and once we got into the 2014 election cycle, I was working closely with uh, the internet party and Kim.com. I was I'd, had been investigating the FBI and the, and the GCSB and, and writing about them quite prominently. Um, and they decided that I was a real problem and they started to physically attack me and, and to endanger my life. Um, and that was the point at which I had to leave the country. Well, I, I'm very glad that you are alive and well in Moscow. And uh, by the time this show goes to radio stations, I will have uh, been over to Moscow and, and seen you there and, and met lots of other Muscovites. Uh, but as we are recording this, I'm just preparing to leave the United States uh, to travel over there. And uh, I, I know you've started making a, a video series called Kiwi in Moscow, and we'll put a link up on talknationradio.org. Um, what do you think will will surprise me about Russia as as someone coming from the United States uh, subject to U.S. media? Um, I think it's so beautiful and it's so well-developed. That's the thing that really struck me. Um, it makes where I come from in New Zealand look like a tiny suburb. Um, it makes even Berlin, where I was living before, look like a tiny suburb. So Moscow is just incredibly well-developed, huge and beautiful, extremely cultured. Um, the average person here goes to the you know orchestra, goes to the concerts, goes to the opera, goes, has a real civic engagement that um, I have, that to me appears to me almost lost in the Western world. Um, they, it's almost every week here, they have fireworks and parades and people involved in things out in their community. Um, whereas in New Zealand, people have seemed to be really isolated, um, stacked in their apartment buildings in the city and not really engaging. I mean, we might have something two or three times a year in, in Auckland, but here it's 40 or 50 times a year there's something going on that everybody's involved in. So if, if you were to uh, if you were to set up an Occupy encampment in uh, in Red Square in in the middle of Moscow and demand that Russia uh, radically reform its its policies, what would the what would the response be of the uh, of the police in Moscow? Look, I I assume that it would be the same as it was in every other country in the world because I'm not under any um, illusion that power um, wants to hold on to power no, no matter where it is on the planet. But on the global stage, um, Russia and China and Iran, these are like the last countries standing against the empire. And they are countries that have been isolated militarily and geographically, and they are under threat. Their cultures and their lands are under threat. Um, you have Brzezinski, who I think it was, who wrote the book saying that they want to carve Russia into three different countries. They want to have a European Russia and an Asian Russia and a, a Central 
Asia and Russia. And when you have those kinds of massive military interests with a thousand military bases around the world um, going after you, I think that um, maybe there's a bit more to the story than, than just what we are being presented with. Absolutely. How, how do Russians, uh, in your experience, think about the United States and the U.S. government's behavior? Um, in Russia, there's a very clear um, delineation between the love of the American culture and the hatred for the oppression of the American military empire. So when you come here, you will see Russians eating buckets of KFC and you will walk down the street and there will be a band playing like Elvis Presley hits in, in English, you know, live music on the street. And you'll see American hotels and American restaurants and people playing American music in their cars. Is they love the American culture. They love the movies and the music and the food and everything else. But they can't stand the fact that America has been taking, <laughs> taking over, invading, destroying country after country after country after country. Um, and when when you make a list for yourself of the countries that America has invaded in the last 60, 70 years, and you make a list of the countries that Russia has invaded, it's a very disparate. Uh, it is indeed. We've got just a few minutes left. I, you've written a very interesting article. I recommend that everyone go to your website and read your articles, but you've, you've written an article suggesting that World War Three is already underway, which is you know mildly uh, <laughs> depressing and uh, <laughs> uh, catastrophic news to to hear. Can you can you explain uh, very briefly? Sure. So I wrote a pretty massive study um, about exactly this, and I called it "Understanding World War Three." And what I did is I went back and looked at what happened in the lead up to World War Two, and what I discovered is that. World wars are not begun because one country invades another country. That's a total fallacy. World wars are begun when a country or a combination of countries stands up against, openly declares war against an occupying force which has, has been invading countries. So we've seen since 2001, America has invaded Afghanistan, Iraq, you know, and they're bombing in Yemen and Pakistan and North African Horn and everywhere else you can think of. The world war doesn't begin when there is war across the world. The world war begins when that coalition of countries says, we're not going to take this anymore and we're declaring war against you. So Hitler had actually, Germany had invaded four, five, six different territories before World War II officially began. So in my opinion, we've been in World War III for the last 10, 15 years, but it's Russia um, taking a stand in Syria and actually openly, overtly pushing back against empire's military agenda was the real beginning of World War III. Yeah. I, I I would like to hope that it doesn't have to end with nuclear holocaust, that it doesn't even have to inevitably end with war, that there is the possibility of the model of the people of the Philippines nonviolently kicking the United States out of their country, that that we've that we've learned some some better options. The, even the possibility of the people of the United States 
restraining their government. Uh, I mean, it doesn't have to end uh, with the obliteration of, of all life on Earth, does it? Well, we hope that the empire will bring itself down as other empires have, and hopefully it will do so with as few casualties internally and externally as as is possible. Um, that would definitely be preferable because nobody wants World War Three. Nobody wants mass, mass casualties on the scale of previous world wars, least of all Russia, who suffered unbelievable losses in World War II, um, 10 times the population of my country sacrificed in that war. Um, I I will raise a big glass of vodka to that hope. Uh, We've been speaking with Susie Dawson. The website is susie3d.com. I wish we could go on. We're out of time. Susie, thank you so much for coming on Talk Nation Radio. Thank you so much for having me, David. I'm such a fan of your work. This is Talk Nation Radio. I'm David Swanson. Take action at rootsaction.org. Help end war at worldbeyondwar.org. All past shows can be heard at davidswanson.org. Talk Nation Radio is produced in Charlottesville, Virginia, and syndicated by Pacifica Network. If you are listening to a nonprofit station, Please support that station. Talk Nation Radio is funded by contributors at davidswanson.org. There is no way to peace. Peace is the way. Until next time.